I'm Lara Land, somatic coach and yoga teacher trainer, and this is the Beyond Trauma podcast. What a couple of years we have had. The challenges continue to grow, and more and more of us are experiencing some level of traumatic stress. My commitment here is to bring you the most up-to-date insights on exactly how trauma affects our mind-body-spirit system and how we can work with our bodies to soften its impacts. You will be hearing from trauma survivors and researchers, and together, we are going to incorporate what they have to teach us to heal ourselves and promote the well-being of all those around us. Here we go. It's out! The Essential Guide to Trauma-Sensitive Yoga is now available everywhere books are sold. This is the book for every yoga teacher, studio, and practitioner who wants to incorporate an inclusive practice to yoga. It's available on my website, laraland.us, and everywhere books are sold. If you're loving this podcast, you are going to love this book. Hello, everyone. Happy New Year. Happy 2024. I'm actually recording this (laughs) late in 2023, did some calculations and was pretty excited to realize that this episode would be our first episode for 2024. Today, I have on a spectacular guest, hopefully starting out a season equally powerful, but I don't know how we're going to top it. But this is definitely going to start out our 2024 season in a really really special way. Cannot believe I haven't had this person on sooner, but maybe the buildup is good, right? Today I have on for you the person who coined the term trauma-sensitive yoga. That's right, Dave Emerson. Super, super exciting. Dave is the founder of Trauma Center Trauma-Sensitive Yoga, TCTSY, for the Justice Resource Institute in Massachusetts, where he coined the term trauma-sensitive yoga. From 2009 to 2011, he was responsible for curriculum development, supervision, and oversight of the yoga intervention component of the first-of-its-kind NIH-funded study to assess the utility of yoga for survivors of trauma. And we are going to go into studies, his most recent study, and why studying the impacts of yoga is so important in this episode, really understanding we can't just make claims, right? Until we can really suss out what trauma-sensitive yoga can do, repeat those studies, prove it again and again. Um, And this is going to have a big impact on how the impacts of trauma are treated, on how people get treatment, maybe even on insurance claims. Dave has developed, conducted, and supervised TCTSY groups for rape crisis centers, domestic violence programs, residential programs for youth, active duty military personnel, survivors of terrorism, and veterans administration centers and clinics and more. He's the co-author of Overcoming Trauma Through Yoga, released in 2011 by North Atlantic Books, and author of Trauma-Sensitive Yoga and Therapy, released by Norton in 2015. I listened to them both. They're both excellent. In 2018, Dave Everson co-founded the Center for Trauma and Embodiment at JRI This is a really, really spectacular conversation. We get into a lot of details, why yoga is important, why trauma-sensitive yoga is important, and differences between complex trauma and PTSD, and what these labels mean. Are they good? Are they not good? Should we use them? What do survivors have to say? What do clinicians have to say? Scope of practice for yoga teachers. What exactly should yoga teachers be saying they can do, be doing, be not doing. A lot of really deep stuff here. Um, If you're interested in, you know, it's kind of like returning to the beginning of why this podcast was started, right? We've been talking about a lot of different modalities in the past months, EMDR, um, play therapy. We're going back to the essence of this podcast. And I was happy to do that. I wanted to do that. And I have some other episodes planned for you um, in this same vein. So, um, but this is great for, you know, anyone who is wondering if this kind of breath and movement and self-identity thing we call yoga might be helpful for them. And this is also great for clinicians 
folks in talk therapy, thinking about their talk therapy, thinking about cognitive processing versus embodied practice or maybe combining them. It just has so many implementations, this conversation, and I know that you're just going to love it. Please make sure to review and rate. And I have a couple of trainings and things coming up. So always check out the website, laraland.us. I'm so happy you're here and I'm so happy that I have the opportunity to release such a really special conversation with Dave Emerson. Here we go. So here we are, Dave. I've been uh, looking forward to this very, very much. As uh, I mentioned to you, I recently caught up on two of your books and uh, realized we'd come to uh, same conclusions about trauma-sensitive yoga, but you're, you're the one that named trauma-sensitive yoga. So, I mean, this is a major honor and you've been at this for a very long time. So um, I am very, very appreciative of your being here and of your deep dedication to research. Thanks for the invitation, Laura. Yeah. And I should just say, you know, it's always been a team effort. So I want to make sure I credit all the folks that have been involved in the process since 2002. And I would definitely agree that research has been a, a centerpiece and we could talk about that. Like why? Yeah. We're going to talk a lot about that actually, because I think that's really important. I'm right now getting my master's in counseling, mental health counseling. You came from social work. So you came through, you know, higher education and understanding, I think maybe, tell me if I'm wrong, but, you know, through that higher education, maybe having more respect for understanding how important it is to really do research and not just, you know, throw our ideas out there. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, my process what did involve being in, in the social work community after college and for about a decade, and then and thinking about going back to school to become a therapist, a clinical social worker. And I did get to do some of that academic stuff. I also had a chance to see some of the inner workings of some of the like celebrity yoga world from mm-hmm. different perspectives. And I would say the dedication to research came partly from exposure to academic work and then also like what we didn't want to do from the yoga perspective, because it's such an unregulated space. There are so many claims that are made about what yoga can do and without any uh, evidence. And especially getting involved with trauma and trauma care and, and complex trauma as it evolved, we really felt the responsibility to have that kind of scrutiny. So the research also serves that purpose too. I just love that. And you know, not over-promising yeah. what yoga can do is something at the heart of my teachings and being, you know, being clear about scope of practice as a yoga teacher. Yeah, exactly. That's that's the key language that that does come from more of the clinical world, but you know, the yoga community could benefit from that idea of scope of practice for sure. I love that. What did you see or experience in the in the social work world and then as you were doing yoga on your own personally that made you realize these two things could come together cuz you were very early on to see that okay, these these two things could really come together specifically to help people with trauma. Yeah. I mean, for me, part of it was being in school to become a clinical social worker and finding that I couldn't, I wasn't comfortable with approaching mental health care from that perspective, from the talk perspective. And I, and this is not to take anything away from talk therapy. I benefit from it myself. I'm many colleagues who are clinicians. It's just, it wasn't a, place that I could find a role in, and also having my own embodiment practices that were really important to me personally. So with, I think, those two things, when I was in in school, I was at the Smith School for Social Work, I read two books that were actually not on the curriculum. One is Trauma and Recovery by Judith Herman, and the other was called Traumatic Stress, but it was an edited volume, Bessel van der Kolk and others. And there were the idea of trauma and the embodied experience of, of survival was presented in these books, but hadn't been really fleshed out in my understanding. And I, I felt like when, when the talk therapy route didn't really fit for me, the embodiment practices were very important to me. It seemed like a, a place where there was an intersection. You know, there was a, a need. This was around two. 1999, in the trauma field, 
there was an expression of interest in embodiment type practices for trauma, complex trauma. I just felt like, well, yoga at that time, yoga could be one possibility. It, it has seems to have a lot of potential. And do the the trauma sensitive yoga participants that you work with, they get a combination of both uh, trauma sensitive yoga and talk therapy. And and if so, is there a specific theoretical approach that the talk therapists use? Great question, right? Because that can re- that can really vary, right? There's a whole. It can really vary, <laughs> and of course, since I'm I'm studying all the different theories, I'm super curious what you know what theories people are drawn to, especially um, for trauma. Yeah, yeah, really great. So the Smith School for Social Work, where I was in school, is a very psychodynamic program. It was mm-hmm. at the time, and and I I'm not sure how it's evolved, but it's still the same. I started a nonprofit in around 2001, 2002 just to teach yoga to people with PTSD. It's called the Black Lotus Yoga Project. And within a few months, I partnered with this group called the Trauma Center here at the time in Brookline, Massachusetts. They've been treating and researching trauma since the 80s. And I think I was fortunate in that their perspective was, it was talk therapy, I would say, fundamentally based on talk therapy, but it was very relational in the approach. So they were not using things like cognitive behavioral therapy, not to say that that doesn't have a place in the field. It's just, I think the, the clinicians there were already like, for example, not using borderline personality disorder as a diagnosis. They were already moving away from that, which is still pretty radical in some sense, because they were finding that complex trauma was much more salient, you know, for their clients. So that was where I really, that's where we really started to develop the yoga program. And I think that relational perspective, understanding the the therapeutic relationship as mm-hmm. being really important was, was, was helpful. Yeah, I love that. That healing really happens in relationship. Yeah. Because, right, we don't live in isolation. In fact, that's one of the impacts of traumas. Uh, folks often feel isolated and alone and sort of li- living in a different sphere from other people and or unsafe in relationship. So having that safe as possible relationship with a, a trusted practitioner um, is going to be a great avenue for healing. Exactly. And you, you basically just described uh, Judith Herman's perspective. I mean, that is exactly what it is, right? Is that trauma is a relational experience and healing is also a relational experience. And for me, I think, and then for us as we're developing the yoga program, thinking about the yoga dynamic as also relational was really, really helpful, right? So it was like uh, the, the community, I think the yoga world is, again, it's very unregulated, but in general, right, especially at the time, it's a very top-down approach. You know, there was somebody who had a bunch of knowledge, whatever that knowledge was, and usually we didn't get access or insight into what it was. They were just in that teacher role and, you know, very directional and command oriented approach to what to do with your body. And so to be able to start to critique that right from the beginning was really, really helpful. And, and when you're doing your trainings and teaching yoga teachers, because you do a certification program, right, for trauma sensitive yoga? Yeah, the training Teacher. program started the basic you know, kind of introductory training started in 2006. And then that evolved, started to do a CERT program in 2013. And is your goal there to train those teachers specifically to work with folks who have complex trauma or PTSD? Or are they going into your general yoga uh, studio and, and using those skills there? Yeah, again, great question, right? Because both are really valid. We have a specific model. It's called TCTSY, and it stands for Trauma Center, Trauma Sensitive Yoga. It's a nod to our our origins at the Trauma Center and then um, that framing language, Trauma Sensitive Yoga. That specific model is what our certification program is built around, and it is uh, an embodiment healing practice created specifically for people with complex trauma. But like you said, Creating more trauma-informed spaces in yoga studios um, also has got a lot of validity to it, right? So like if you have some skills and insight into what what trauma is and kind of how to show up, that can be helpful 
probably in, in any scenario. But our certification program is specifically empowering folks to use the TCTSY model for survivors, with survivors. Wonderful. And you specifically noted um, you know, s- folks with complex trauma. I'm curious because, um, like I said, I listened to two of your books back to back. And um, in one, you really highlighted that your focus was complex trauma, which is a little different than PTSD. And I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, it can definitely be wrong. It seemed like later you've moved into sort of holding both under your umbrella. Do you have recommendations for teaching yoga to those um, like two different subgroups differently? Um, what would you say about that? Yeah, you know, so how do we unwind? <laughs> maybe you want to define for folks, yeah. maybe we're moving too quickly, you know, complex trauma versus PTSD and and maybe what the effects of those might look like yeah. in folks and how that might impact how we might offer the yoga practice. Yeah, no, because it's great. It's a really great conversation. I'm glad we're having it. And I would say the way I would describe trauma theory, right, is in 1980, we got a diagnosis called post-traumatic stress disorder that is still the only real trauma diagnosis, you know, that's in sort of the medical literature. But since night from starting, as soon as that diagnosis gets, you know, put in print, basically, people like Judith Herman and folks at the trauma center are beginning to already kind of unpack it and in a way unwind the diagnosis because the people that are showing up for care often don't fit into that one category, might not even qualify for the PTSD diagnosis, but have had, in our case, with complex trauma, like multiple traumatic experiences. So the language complex trauma refers to repeated interrelational dynamics of power abuse would be one kind of succinct way to say it. And that can show up in a dyad where there's a perpetrator someone abusing power and someone that's surviving, you know, in that kind of context. And we could talk more about that. Or it can be systemic. So a society like the one that I live in is a is a white supremacist and misogynist society. So people that are embodied like me, white male folks, are infused with power in this context. Other people who have different embodiments are are surviving. You know, they're, they're really core self is under assault in multiple ways all the time. So the orientation of moving through the world is one of survival. And the research plays this out. I mean, we, you can find really clear correlation or it looks very similar to a child growing up in an abusive home to a, like, say, a black queer woman living in our society. Very similar impacts and outcomes. That is essentially complex trauma. It's relational power abuse. And then what adaptations we need to make in order to survive. And now those adaptations are, are sometimes called the symptoms. Mm-hmm. Right? And for complex trauma, they're very deep and broad. They interact with our whole organism, our brains, our you know, neurochemistry, our sense of ourself, relationships are impacted. So when we're building this model, TCTSY, over the years, we really center complex trauma. And then we can talk more about how and why, but that's a brief overview, at least. Yeah, no, that's that's fantastic. And I mean, not fantastic, but a, like you really broke it down very, very well. And I was very struck by it. I need to read more of the literature and the new, more and more testing um, and research that's coming out to show uh, what you said about being a Black queer woman in this society, being so on par with, you know, the kind of adaptations that a child in abuse would would Mm -hmm. be going through. Definitely thought about those adaptations before, but never in in such strong language. And I think uh, that will touch a lot of our listeners. Um, Do you want to touch on PTSD and how that might look different and, and then you know, how we might adjust in the yoga space? Or do you think it's better to just continue, you know, with the lens of complex trauma? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think where most of us here 
um, trauma. We, we, we may, most of us probably think of PTSD. And, and so it might help to just name that specifically. It's a, it's a diagnosis that requires a certain set of symptoms. And in order to get the diagnosis, there's a mediator. There's a, like a trained professional that you sit down with and discuss your symptoms and they have to, they score you basically on a scale. And if you have enough symptoms in these fairly limited categories, you can get the diagnosis. So it's, there's a quality of arbitrariness to it. What's the difference between, you know, a 43 on, on the scale and a 47, when the 47, you would get the diagnosis and the 43, you wouldn't. I mean, who gets to make that decision? Yeah. And for us, right. And people like Judith Herman, for example, especially, right. They're critiquing the the diagnosis from that perspective. Who gets to make the diag? Who gets to decide? Yeah. Right. That my experiences are traumatic, and th- and that's a big dis- discussion that we probably should all be having all the time. And I, I think from the complex trauma perspective, we are centering the survivor or the the person, uh, the ex- person's experiences. So we we don't we don't need to mediate that, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like. And that, that is, it's interesting because the medical f- field requires a diagnosis. You were asking earlier about how we sometimes oscillate between PTSD and complex trauma. Well, we got the first grant given by the National Institutes of Health in 2009 to study yoga for trauma. But part of the requirement is we had to look at PTSD symptoms. Yeah. Right. So when you get funded like that, because it's the only diagnosis, we had to investigate whether or not there was a change. So often like in We'll be talking about PTSD symptoms, but the folks in our studies, we try to be very intentional about having complex trauma. So there mm-hmm. is not just one incident trauma per se, right? Which is also a requirement for PTSD. Folks have, you know, like for example, in that first study, the trauma had to occur at least 12 years prior to entry in the study. So we were aiming for complex trauma, early life experiences Mm. and that's what we that's what we got yeah that's that's so interesting and you know folks that might not know that are listening right now that might not you know understand so much about this the dynamics of yeah first of all getting that diagnosis you're speaking to so many important elements right now right of the person that makes the diagnosis and and first of all right they're coming through with their lens second of all the diagnosis might be necessary right it's sometimes necessary Mm -hmm to get certain levels of treatment, to get things covered in health insurance. So these have like political and funding, you know, effects. And that's why there's a, there are a lot of layers to diagnosis that um, you're touching on right now that are so important and people should dig more into to try to understand because it really is um, quite a complex web of how things get done, (laughs) uh, how people can, can get uh, access to um, certain treatments and um, and also have their experience validated, right? You're speaking to that as well. The fact that you know we only have that PTSD diagnosis, um, what what that could do to someone who doesn't qualify to that diagnosis as far as being seen and heard mm-hmm. um, and validated in their experience. So, yeah, a lot of uh, rich rich stuff there. I think you're right on. And that actually, it connects back to the conversation we were having earlier about identity, because if let's say I'm the interviewer, right, um, with my lived experiences, my embodiment as a white male cisgender person, and I'm interviewing a trans black woman, my experiences of what are traumatic might be very, very different. And if I'm making the assumptions based on my lived experiences, I'm missing something. So I think, you know, that that just shows like how identity does come into play and subjectivity comes into play. And then, then ultimately in the context of PTSD, it's my, it's the interviewers, it's the professional's uh, opinion that matters most. And, and that's, again, another really important conversation for us to keep having. With complex trauma, there's some controversy in the community. Um, there's an effort to get that diagnosis into DSM, the Physician's Desk Reference for Psychological Disorders. But there are folks in the community who identify as uh, survivors who don't want the diagnosis because there's a certain kind of freedom to not having that gatekeeper, right? If 
if you, the community of caregivers understands complex trauma, but there isn't the gatekeeper that says, yes, you have this or not, it creates a certain kind of freedom in terms of the relationship. Like, I don't have to diagnose you in order to be offering you something. Yeah. And the person doesn't need a diagnosis in order to get what we have. And it's just, it's interesting to think about. It's very interesting to think about. That's that's a different perspective. And I like that. Let's talk a little bit about the the actual classes that you offer. I'm curious about some of the differences. And well, well, actually, let's stay on the topic of you know that power dynamic as as folks come to you for yoga. Um, and you know, I think there's a lot of conditioning. There's even in in those of us who might say, okay, we we don't identify as a trauma survivor. You know, we're conditioned from a very young age to try to please a teacher, please mm-hmm. authority. Um, and then that's, you know, heightened more so, you know, when someone's been through trauma and they've been through one of those abusive relationships and and needed to adapt to survive, right? Exactly. To to please that person in power. So they're walking in to see someone like you or someone, you you know, you or someone you've trained. And what are some of the things that you do to um, help folks to feel into their own power in that space? Yeah, that's great. I mean, so starting with the understanding that, like we were talking about earlier, the relationship is really the most important thing that's happening. And that also shows up in like a lot of research around the, the therapeutic alliance, the relationship between a therapist and a client. And it really turns out that the relationship is what matters most, not the technique. So starting from there, you described the, the perspective that we take, which is survivorship, surviving requires turning over at parts of myself in order to survive. And that also that includes things like who's in charge of this body. So we understand the healing process of it's really a, like a, a multi-layered reclamation of self. And that includes who's in charge of this body. So with, let's say, a yoga form, a, a TCTSY session, the facilitator makes an effort to be invitational at all times. So if a person is highly attuned to the power dynamic and the need to survive, the default will be, what does this guy want from me? Like, what does this person want me to do? What do I need to do to survive this experience? And we're offering, we're trying to offer opportunities where people can experiment with not having to survive. Right. And like, you know, you, you use some language around safety earlier and it's tenuous. We aren't, we don't require people to feel safe with us at all, but we're trying to offer a space where someone can like, uh, explore not needing to survive. One way to start with that is being invitational with your cues, right? Just indicating to the participant that your way isn't the only way right? That there may be options and that opens up room for the participant to consider what do they want. And then we just try, we sort of build from there. Do you think uh, folks come in with an idea about, you know, yoga, it's, it should look this way or, and even, I, I imagine some come in for the yoga, but do folks come in for uh, more of a talk therapy, get invited into yoga, have preconceived notions about this yoga thing hmm. probably isn't for me or people like me. And how do you sort of open that up? Yeah. Yeah. The whole range, you know, the whole range. So we have about a thousand facilitators working in over 40 countries, territories, and first nations around the world, all kinds of settings, refugee centers in the Middle East, um, for example, prisons and jails, things, you know, all kinds of different scenarios where people are coming into contact with this TCTSY, let's say. And there's a whole range of like prior experience. Some people have heard, you know, yoga is kind of in the, it's in the, like the, the ether, it's in the air in our communities. So, so many people practice it. It shows up in popular culture all the time. So there may be pre- preconceived notions, but there are times where it's completely brand new. You know, part of this responsibility of the facilitator is to meet a person wherever they are with their prior experience, right? So for example, I work with kids mostly like teens with TCTSY and 
the first time we meet, I just ask, you know, have, have you ever done yoga before? What'd you think of it? You know, like what, what was your basic experience, that kind of thing. And, and just try to get a sense. And then for me, uh, or for this perspective, it would often be something like the way this model is kind of set up is right. Uh, there are no physical assists, let's say, because that's a big one. And a lot of yoga classes have physical touch. TCTSY doesn't do that. There's a focus on choice making, right? So I'll use that language of choice that so you get to make choices for yourself. And then we talk a lot about something we can, might want to get more into, which is called interoception, and that's body sensation awareness, right? So I'll try to give an overview of what this actually is. Um, but yeah, people come into it with a whole range of prior experiences, sometimes negative, um, mm -hmm. often negative. Yoga has a whole, you know, our yoga in the West, um, and, and not, not only the West, yoga globally has a history of abusive um, dynamics, you know, relationships that are abusive with a, a teacher and the way that they manage themselves. And, and that's real. And, and we yeah. need to be aware of that. Yeah. There's a lot to be aware of. And um, I found there can be a lot of resistance to the word yoga yeah. itself. And sometimes we question if we should even call things yoga, yeah. you know, as far as it being a barrier for people stepping in the room and, um, you know, experiencing something that might be really, um, you know, positive and transformative for them. What's the best way to, you know, get folks to, into the room, right? And then they can, of course, decide for themselves, but mm -hmm. um, giving them a chance to try it. I found things like, just like, like you're describing, a lot of freedom, um, freedom for folks to wear what they want, to keep shoes on, to leave if it's not for them, mm -hmm. um, can help get that initial uh, try. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then folks tend to like it and come back if they can get, get in the room. But like you said, some people come from some really not great experiences, which I think speaks to what we were talking about earlier about the the need to get, you know, quote unquote, regular <laughs> yoga studio teachers trained with at least some level of trauma sensitivity. Yeah. Because what a shame for, you know, and, and as we know, so many people are recommending and someone goes to their doctor their, to get a checkup you know, or for back pain. Or they go to their therapist and they're getting sent to yoga classes, which, you know, as you spoke so eloquently to, there's not a lot of regulation in the industry and they can have a really bad first experience mm -hmm. that sadly can turn folks off for a long time. Totally. You know, and to be fair, there are a lot of therapists who aren't well-trained in trauma, right? So it's like, it can happen. It can happen on either side, but for sure, I think that more yoga teachers can learn. I mean, there's always that I find, you know, there is a there's a little bit of danger in having a little bit of knowledge and then sort of showing up thinking thinking that you might know more one might know more than they do. And sometimes in a space like that, uh, it can be problematic. But yeah, it, it does seem to be there's a way to get more trauma information to folks that are facilitating yoga classes. It's a, it's a very intimate, embodied, fully embodied experience. And our whole, the framework of complex trauma that we work with is our bodies are what hold trauma. And I, and I don't mean that in an esoteric way. It's very real. It's, it's, it changes the way our brain works, you know, the ways we interact with our bodies, the way we sense ourselves, And that's showing up in every yoga studio or, or health club. So it could be helpful, you know. And the other thing I would encourage you for yoga teachers is have a referral network. You know, yes. if, um, no, like you were talking about scope of practice. I don't remember if that was before we started to record, but it's such a great framework to, you know, appreciate what you have, right? Stay within your scope and then have colleagues you can refer people to that you, you trust, you know, who do other work that you, that you can't do or that you don't do. Can't highlight that enough. <laughs> Cannot highlight that enough. Get to know other modalities. And, you know, people who offer group therapies, EMDR, you know, what, whatever, you know, and, and know some great practitioners who are trauma sensitive and, you know, maybe test out their services. Like you said, build your network mm -hmm. and a network of support. I think that's like one of the greatest bits of advice we can give to yoga teachers. 
I'm wondering about your work with the teenagers. I mean, I hear that and I'm sure some listeners might feel the same, like, that's the hardest group (laughs) to teach and to teach yoga to. And then you're talking about teens that have been through trauma. And I think you teach these teens in group settings. I'd really love to pick your brain about managing groups a bit, because I I think that's something that, you know, people are interested in and it might not be something that's talked about enough. I know that boundaries are something that really shift or can feel confusing after a traumatic experience. Sometimes I know I've seen a lot of what we might call oversharing or um, sharing that could be triggering to others in group settings, commenting on people's practices. You know, uh, I mean, teens anyway can say anything. Uh, a lot of, uh, tell me, w- how do you manage uh, groups and, and a group of teens? Yeah. <laughs> Actually, so to be honest, at this point, for years now, it's been one-to-one or dyads. Um, okay. We wrote a little bit about it in 2011 because for me personally, I started this specific work with youth in 2006 and we tried we tried classes and it did not work and you know i'm in a residential setting so the the youth are there all the time together like 24 7 lots of social dynamics they're teens and complex trauma so it was a combination that didn't suit well we were talking about safety before and you know being a kid teenager anyway, we're really attuned to the other teenagers in the room, you know, like what's our social status and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And then as a survivor, you know, we're super attuned like to a really high level with what's coming at us, like from other people. So we found that it's small. Again, it really kept going smaller, smaller. Now we're to one or two youth at a time and very short. The sessions mm-hmm. are 10 minutes. And, oh, excellent. you know, it's just... It really works in a setting like that. But there are people out there, you know, one of the studies we, we just finished this fall was with young male identifying youth in Georgia who are in, I mean, in jail. There's no other way to say it. You know, the U.S. Is, is a country that does incarcerate youth and their average age is about 16. They did group classes and they went really well. And uh, we did, we wrote about that too. That's a paper that is out there as well. Oh, well, I have to read that one. And, you know, and then there's a little bit in there about group dynamics and, you know, what that's like. But my experience here with TCTSY has been to, in order to have space to make decisions for yourself, right, to center your own embodied experience, to practice sensation awareness, uh, the one one or two people in the room at the same time is is kind of a... it's kind of important. And the short session too. Yeah, I really like that um, call to the the short session. You know, it's something I say a lot, but I, I think people don't believe it that you don't need to do an hour or 90 minutes to get the benefits of this practice. I mean, it all depends on what it's for, right? Like people, and, the, and the, well, I think as a field, as a community, let's just say yoga community, it's, I think it's okay to offer all kinds of options for people, right? Like all sorts of different classes, some that are really focused on alignment, some that are centered on strength, some that are 90 minutes, whatever it is. It's really more about like, what, what's it for? You know, and I think with our model for TCTSY, yoga is in there. And I, we could talk about why, if you want, like why yoga, why we maintain that terminology. Yeah. But it is a treatment for complex trauma. And so it's really, it's something different and very, very specific. So for example, right, there are folks that come to TCTSY sessions who also go to like Iyengar classes, mm-hmm. you know, or something like power yoga classes, but they come to TCTSY for something specific. Yeah, please, please elaborate on that. Um, I know, you know, you you hinted at the the big interception and or anything else you want to say about why yoga why your style of yoga, you know, why it isn't jujitsu or another embodied practice. You know, I think a lot of our our listeners are yoga people, but not, not everyone. And I think this is really important. And then we should definitely talk about your studies. Yeah, no, that's great. And I think, you know, and as the co-director of the Center for Trauma and Embodiment, which is where where I'm located, we have three programs. We have yoga and we now have weightlifting and a theater program for youth centered around embodiment. So with yoga, why yoga? And I'm not a yoga 
philosopher or even, I would say, I guess I'm a student of yoga philosophy, but that's been evolving over the years. I'll just name somebody for your listeners. And his name is Dr. Sham Ranganathan. He's in Canada. He is a yoga philosopher and our organization has a relationship with him. He comes in and works with our community once or twice a year. The other kinds of conversations I, I really want to be involved in are cultural appropriation and who has the right to claim space, you know, as a yoga teacher. And I, I want to be in conversation around that. I don't, I don't want to claim that, like, I don't want to claim I have a right, actually. I want, you know, I think we should be in conversation. But, but with yoga, where we are now with it and as it's evolved is there are some philosophical cornerstones like ahimsa and non-harm that are we find to be really important for trauma care. And if you can center non-harm in the healing process for complex trauma, which is to me one of the most, in a certain way, a perfection of harm. The complex trauma is, for human beings, is like the epitome of harm. And if you can really center a commitment to non-harm in the model and then in the practice, that has a benefit that is unique. I would say it's unique. And so for me, ahimsa is really important. And and that is yoga from my perspective. And then as I'm learning from Dr. Ranganathan in particular, there's a lot around the integrity of the self that is integrated into yoga philosophy that is really appropriate, you know, for complex trauma healing, because for trauma to occur, there has to be a breakdown of the integrity of the self. Perpetrators have have a nose for that, whether it's an individual or a system of abuse. Dehumanizing people is the way to create victims. And surviving in that context is is the task. You know, that is the task. And it's grueling. It takes an incredible amount of energy to survive when your, you know, your basic integrity is always under assault. And so like with yoga, as I understand it, there is a real ethos of claiming your selfhood and honoring that as something that deserves space in the world. And I think, um, Yoga is unique. I don't think, you know, it probably isn't the only way. And like I said, we do, we have a weightlifting program that does, has some other perspectives, you know, on what healing and embodiment are. For me, yoga, yoga brings that in that is is, is special. And actually that, that travels, you know, that ethos travels to the weightlifting program and to the theater program. So in a way, yoga is kind of impacting uh, those programs too. That's beautiful. And uh, I come from a theater background. And I think many of us that are in yoga do. <laughs> there is a connection there. And, and my theater training brought me to yoga. Oh, we were, you know, doing cool. breath work, grounding, improvisational movement. And I started to be more interested in the stuff I was releasing through the breathing and the moving. And that became my area of exploration. And so there's, there's definitely a strong connection there. That's cool. That's really cool. So let's dig into um, these practices and and the studies that you've been doing around them. I know you have a new study out. First of all, I mean, for folks to, we talked a little bit about studies. This is not so easy, getting funding, getting, you know, a group to stay together, (laughs) to not drop out for for the length of a study, other things, uh, isolating the yoga and the specific hypothesis around what you think will happen right after this period of practice. So (laughs) studies are definitely not easy to to put together. Um, I'm very interested in, you know, how you decide to frame the ones that that you do. Um, This uh, recent paper that just came out, it looks like this is something you've been working on since since 2015. So this is like uh, quite a long period of work before the paper gets written. Where, where do you want to start um, in terms of talking about studies and talking about you know your latest published article? Yeah, the, thanks so much for making space for that. Yeah, and as a matter of fact, we actually started training the facilitators in 2012. So it's been over a decade that we've worked Oof, there. Yeah. Which, you know, uh, just a chance to shout out some of our collaborators, Vian Nguyen Fang at the University of Minnesota, 
Ursula Kelly on this particular project at Emory University, Ashley Owen-Smith at uh, Georgia State, and more, but so many people involved. And I think the one you're referring to, the, the latest one is a randomized control trial, which is really the, in the Western medical model, it's the gold standard. And they they cost the most and they take the most time because they're the most scrutinized, which is, you know, kind of what we what you aim for as you're trying to develop a new model. And so our first randomized control trial uh, was the one that was funded in 2009. By the this is a, a big deal. I'm sorry to cut you off, Dave. I was just thinking maybe you can explain to folks about what it means to have a randomized clinical trial. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That makes it so it's, you know, because I think folks, we've gotten so used to, you know, a study came out today that wine is good for you and a study came out, right? And so there are, for folks who want to understand more about studies, because I think it's good for us all to be able to have a basic understanding of like when you're looking at a paper, what you're looking at. Right. There are different qualities of studies. Getting a randomized clinical trial, this is incredible. Yeah, absolutely. And so for me, like this has been for 20 years a learning process, and I've been able to be part of these teams, which has been an incredible gift. So I can speak about it from that perspective, which is the first kinds of research you do are their feasibility studies, which is like just testing to see if your group is interested. So we did our first feasibility study with TCTSY in 2003. And that was to see if the clients at the trauma center were were interested, if they would come. We combined that with a little bit of data. So we, we created our own scale, which was around your relationship to your body, kind of like how friendly do you feel toward your body, just to test out a little bit of feedback. And then so feasibility studies, pilot studies, that would be considered a pilot as well. Those are fairly simple. Like we didn't even have to fund, you know, that first one. We just did that for free, just pro bono. We were we were wanted to get things rolling. When you start to get into things like randomized control trials, that's where you need you need a lot of money because it takes a lot of time and you have a pretty big team. So then you got to go through the whole grant process. But aside from that, in terms of quality, for people that are looking at research, you can look for whether or not it was a randomized control trial. And there are a lot of things out there that don't have randomized control trials and, you know, but still claim to have some evidence. It doesn't mean that the evidence is not worthy necessarily. It just means we should know the difference. And with a, I'll just say RCT, what happens is that people are enrolled and then randomly assigned either to the, let's say, TCTSY or to a control group. So they're randomly assigned. And that random assignment is supposed to increase the integrity of the data, right? So it's not like people necessarily chose. Yeah. yeah. However, right, there is also a very reasonable study design where people do get to choose for something like TCTSY. Now that it's been through several randomized control trials, you can actually go back now mm-hmm. <laughs> and say, okay. Um, This is actually our goal for the next larger one at the VA is people will get to choose it. And we want, because ultimately with complex trauma and this model, choice is paramount. Mm -hmm. So we do want- It would be interesting to know too, like if people chose, you know, cognitive processing versus the TCTSY, right? So they have the choice and they choose one or the other. Like how does that actually- impact the results? That's, that's yeah. an interesting question, right? Totally. Yeah. There, is, that, there is a scientific approach that has a lot of validity. But when you're trying to get a model validated, right? So that's what we've been doing with TCTSY for 20 years. Hmm. You have to do randomized controlled trials in different settings, you know, with different populations. Yeah. So um, that's so what Let's talk good. about this um, population. Yeah. Because you worked on this, uh, so the latest paper is called Yoga versus Cognitive Processing Therapy for Military Sexual Trauma Related Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder, a randomized clinical trial. So my first curiosity was around the the group you chose. At first I was like, oh, it's interesting that he chose military and post-traumatic stress considering your you know, interest in complex trauma. But I think you've explained for us that since it's not really a validated diagnosis, that, you know, in order to to do a trial like this, we would look for that post-traumatic stress diagnosis. I also understand that 
A lot of folks go for testing military because they have so much pre-event blood work. Was that Hmm. something that was important to you or that didn't come into it? They did do some biomarkers, but we didn't write about those in this paper. So yeah, that could be a factor. What I would say about the VA though, is that it's it's the second largest healthcare provider in the United States besides Medicare. So it's huge. And if you can establish validity in a big system like the VA, other people listen, you know, mm. so there's a lot there. And then there's, there's a lot of, there's structure that's available in terms of like meeting space and getting people together and things like that. But I would say for us, you hit on some key things there, which is we had to study PTSD because it is a pressing concern, right, for this institution. We, our principal investigator, Ursula Kelly, is a nurse practitioner who is, has a specific interest in women's experiences in the military. So she really wanted to center female identifying veterans in this project. We, our initial site was in Atlanta. 90% of the women identify as Black or African American, which is really, really important because our first study, I think about, it's like 73% identify as white or Caucasian. So we got a chance to expand, you know, the scope. And we wrote about it in the paper. It's in there, right? So another thing for listeners, if you get into like looking through research, we sort of indicate that we know the population that we're serving in this study had prior trauma. So the, the military sexual trauma was the index event that was required by, you know, for entry here, but they had prior trauma. So we know that we're actually looking at complex trauma even though we have to study PTSD symptoms. Yeah. There's a little bit of a political kind of work around there in a, in a way, but that's something people can look for is who was the actual population. Yeah, super smart. I noted right away the the diversity in your study, which is you know seriously lacking in studies still. I mean, even just women alone aren't studied. Yeah, totally. And that's interesting maybe for your listeners too. All the early PTSD research was all male-identifying combat veterans. Yeah. Very specific group um, and, and, and largely white population. So it looked like the effectiveness of the trauma-sensitive yoga was on par with someone getting a cognitive processing therapy. Yes. Yeah. So to break that down, CPT, that's the gold standard in the VA. That's what everybody gets who has PTSD. And it's a very, if it's unfamiliar to listeners, it's um, very talk, not necessarily the talk part is not the most important part. It understands trauma as a problem of thinking. So the way you think about trauma and the way you think about yourself you know, as a survivor. And the the goal is to help you change the way you think about trauma and about what can come next. The reason we set up the study the way it is, is we had already proven some efficacy with TCTSY. Now we wanted to test it against the gold standard, not to disprove the gold standard, that CPT has really good results. The problem is that most people don't complete the series, right? So you have a thing for the people that complete the 12 weeks of cognitive processing therapy, the results are really good. And that showed up in our study as well. Most people don't complete it. So one of the questions is, does TCTSY stack up against the gold standard? And I wonder if people are going to, will more people be interested in completing it or not? And it turned out that, like you said, the outcomes were really similar, both really positive and about 40% more people completed the TCTSY. So, which is unbelievable. <laughs> 42.6% actually <laughs> higher treatment completion rate. I mean, that kind of goes back to what we were saying about getting getting people in the, in the room and staying in the room, right? Like yeah. if they can't stay, even if it's a great model, yeah. then it it doesn't work. Exactly. Yeah, and you know, it does happen to be true that CPT and TCTSY are, they're almost polar opposites because with TCTSY, there's no talking about trauma at all, right? It's just embodied practice from a, you know, very specific perspective. We can make some, I guess you would say speculation, right? About why people may be sticking with it. 
One thing we can save looking at the data is the change in symptoms happened very fast in the TCTSY group, which indicates the possibility, you know, that people yeah. felt their symptoms change and that was encouraging. So they decided. I, I think that's big. You know what I mean? Like that's, that looks to be the case. That's a, that's speculation. I saw a critique of the study, which was that people were, they were, because of the random assignment, some people dropped out of CPT because they didn't get yoga, right? So the critique was um, people wanted the TCTS. Oh, interesting. Okay. And I would say, I mean, I, I, I asked this question because I'm, I'm working on putting together a potential study right now. So one of the things we're thinking of is, you know, the people that don't get the yoga after the study is done. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, they're offered TCTSY. That was one, that would be one rebuttal I would have. The other one is, if you look at the data, the people in the, the TCTSY group had the symptom change within the first couple of weeks. And that may have been what encouraged them to stay with it. Are you able to do any like qualitative, you know, can you ask these questions or? Yes, yeah. yeah. And there were interviews done. So we'll, we'll see if we get to write about those at some point. Well, I'll be so interested in that. This is like, I love this stuff. (laughs) It's really, really interesting. But um, I think, of course, it's science. We can't assume anything. But I I think there's definitely something to feeling that initial benefit. And I think even in therapeutic models, there's some good debate about, you know, some of these more drawn out talk models that, you know, as opposed to some of the brief ones (laughs) that, Uh you know, that, that have some of the same you know, results as far as study-wise, you know? So, you know, if people can feel change happening quickly, it's like sometimes we get caught in this idea that that something can't be true unless it's hard and long. Yeah, interesting. Right? And like a lot of work, like healing has to be work, right? Yeah. I think it's interesting to to maybe change that narrative. Yeah, I think that, that's a really, that's Cool point. I, one thing I can we can say about this research is that the TCTSY group uh, did the measurements about I think it was two months after the end, and the symptoms started to tick up a little bit. Mm, so, yeah, yeah. Right. So, like the curiosity for us for the team here is, what if we offer it for a longer term? We did a project in 2015 or so, which was 20 weeks. And, the and symptom- did you see that tick up? Sorry, I'm just yeah. so curious with the the CPT or not, not as much? Actually, it continued to drop. Okay. So, <laughs> so like fewer people finish CPT, but over the two months, the idea of CPT is you learn skills that you're supposed to practice. Okay. So Interesting. like theoretically, that's how it should go, right? So fewer people did it, but the ones that did, uh, they maintain the benefits the two months out. And I think that does speak to what something like TCTSY is, is it is a relational experience. So what we want to do in our next VA study is have like optional boosters for people. Like every Mm -hmm. month people could come to a class, they do their the 10 weeks, and then over the course of the two or three years, they could choose to come, you know, whether it's once a month or however we end up setting it up. And then we will get to measure that and see if that sort of booster in a sense, yeah, has an impact. And um, again, like because it's a choice, some people will choose to do it and some won't. So we'll, we'll get a little bit of comparative data there. Yeah. I mean, there's, my mind is like, I don't know, I'm just bursting with ideas about different studies or ways to, is there a home take-home practice that folks yeah. could do? You yeah, know, we uh, did that. You know, yeah, we, did okay. that. we had DVDs and stuff and, yeah. and it actually didn't, I am going to speculate a little bit here, but I would say that that wasn't a factor. Because you're saying it's about being together. About being is about the doing with the yeah. So, which is very yogic, right? Like yeah. yoga is a practice that is supposed to function as a integrated part of your life, right? It's something that's not a short term fix, yeah. but it doesn't have to be medicine, like in the Western perspective, like you were saying earlier, it's more about integrating it into your Mm -hmm. life. And that seems to be what this little data or this specific data is showing is when you stop doing it. And we have some earlier tests from years ago where we got to the people that did our first randomized control trial came back about 18 months later Mm -hmm. and did the measurements. The folks that continue to do yoga, they actually maintain the benefits. Yeah. 
So we actually have some data. We wrote, we've written about all this. There's 30 or so papers on our website. Anybody can find if you want. Great. Yeah. And I'm going to link all of that in the show notes. They'll definitely link this paper specifically and then where folks can find the other papers. This study happened over the pandemic. Yeah. And I noticed there there was a shift from in-person to hybrid. So we started, like you said, in 2015, shifted, have to shift the whole setup (laughs) in the spring of 2020. And what, what turned out to be the case is, which is also great to be able to share, the online groups did just as well. Yeah, that's, that is very interesting, right? Yeah, it's encouraging. I mean, not every, you know, some people, in other words, it could be a choice, right? Uh, we don't have to dismiss the, like the Zoom TCTSY or any other kind of Zoom thing um, as not being valid just because- Do you still be think they felt a sense of togetherness? And is there anything that you can say about, you know, what the instructors did online to get that feeling that we're sometimes missing virtually? That's a great question. And we, again, we did interviews and we also did like lengthy interviews with the facilitators. And I can tell you the facilitators of the online group, they reported less, a lot less satisfaction than the in-person. Yeah. Yeah. Which I'm is not really, surprised yeah, <laughs> as mean, someone who's taught yoga in person and online. Okay. So you know that. And, but however, the participants were benefiting just as well. Yes. So that may be things we need to talk about, right? In other words, some of us might not want to be teach online and that's okay, but some of us might enjoy that and, and, that, and that's okay too. But the participants were getting the benefits um, according to the data. So very cool. Very cool. Yeah. You know, and some people enjoy, I know, I, I mean, I sometimes do, right? Not leaving the house, <laughs> you know, yeah. there are, there are definite benefits to being in the comforts of home sometimes and not having to travel and all those kind of things. Um, exactly. Yeah. exactly. Very interesting. Well, Dave, I've uh, kept you a while. I did want to ask you before we close just about your, yeah, your thoughts for the future of trauma theory. I mean, you've been in it a long time. It's changed so much. You know, where do you think it's going? Where or and, and maybe these are two questions. Where are your studies going? You've mentioned it a little bit, but maybe you want to expand some more. What's on the horizon for softening the impacts of trauma? For the Center for Trauma and Embodiment, you know, we're really, we're invested in these three programs. So developing weightlifting and the theater program is a real priority. I would say big picture for us, cross-cultural collaboration is the most, I think, important and interesting space because you, I think you mentioned it earlier, like who gets access? You know, who tends to get access to good care? That's very dependent on access to resources, you know, feeling like, feeling safe, uh, asking for medical care or going into a yoga studio. The same people that tend to go to a yoga studio are the people that go to therapy, mm-hmm. which leaves out most people, actually. Yeah. So how do we create more access? And we're, we've been able to be involved in some really interesting cross-cultural work. There's a grad student in Puerto Rico who did her dissertation on like a cultural adaptation of TCTSY. We have Mm. really good collaborations with some indigenous communities here in North America, trans and queer youth and adults. So we're, that's really where we want to put our efforts is collaborating with communities and folks and um, making this available to people because with, especially with TCTSY, it's proven now to be effective. And then we just want to make it available as a choice, you know, for folks. That's wonderful. Anything else you want people to know um, about, you know, shout out your site, how to find you, how to work with you, get trained by you, um, all that good stuff. Feel free to visit traumasensitiveyoga.com. We'll have our CFTE website is, is being sort of reconstructed right now. It's Heal with CFTE. That'll be out. And available hopefully by the end of the year can learn about all three programs and um, yeah just happy to interact with folks however however they find us well this was uh very very informative for me dave there's uh there's there's more i could ask you but i'll encourage people to dig into your site and and read your books um and maybe i'll uh i'll even get to have you on again one day for part two because your, you know, your depth of knowledge is really, um, 
I'd say unparalleled. And I am deeply, deeply appreciative of your time, your energy, and just your your research and and your thinking ahead in this field, all you've given to this field. It's it's quite incredible. Thank you so much, Dave. You bet. Thanks so much, Laura. Really, really good to talk with you. As we buzz around the busy world, it becomes clear there are billions of paths. As we buzz around the busy world, we will appear in other people's photographs. As we speed through the centuries, we will collide and the light will bend. We will be accidentally immortalized in someone else's land.